Hey, Eric, guess what time it is? I don't know. What time is it, Scott? It's time for the ad read at the top of the show. Today, as we've been doing for the last several weeks, we are promoting the good folks over at Fangoria, and not just because... Uh, They are now our corporate overlords. They are benevolent. We love them. But they did want us to pass along a message. And that is that Fangoria has been going strong since 1979. And they are still releasing 100-page collectible issues of their magazine even now. These pages are filled with content from, you know, some of the best, most well-informed. And I'm going to go ahead and say good-looking horror writers currently working the game today. You don't want to miss a single issue of this magazine. They are beautifully executed. Collectibles, too. Apparently, there's like a a secondary market for those. Who knew? The point being that you want to get on the Fangoria magazine train. How can people do that, Eric? Well, that's very easy, Scott. They can go to Fangoria.com and sign up for their annual subscription. And since they're listeners to the KingCast... They can get 25% off, and if my math is correct, and it always is, that's like getting one free issue a year. Yeah, that sounds about right. All you have to do is enter in the promo code KINGCAST when you sign up for your yearly subscription. All right, on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Well, sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast via the Bangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Today we have a very special returning guest who I think our listeners are going to be very excited about. His list of accomplishments is both long and considerable. He's the creator of shows like Dead Like Me, Wonderfalls, Pushing Daisies, and American Gods, but in this household, he will always be the absolute madman who launched Hannibal, one of the gnarliest shows ever to appear on network television. More recently, you will remember him as the guest who delivered one of the all-time best episodes of this podcast when he came and talked to us about Salem's Lot and just blew the doors off that motherfucker. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the KingCast stage, Mr. Brian Fuller. Brian, say hello to everyone. Hello! We are so excited to have you back. I'm very excited to, to come back. I love what you have been doing with your podcast. It's sort of, you know, rejuvenating a la Christine, my, <laughs> my fandom for Stephen King. And it's it's been glorious to listen to you share that enthusiasm with so many uh, wonderful people. We hear a lot from people that are like, all right, fuck it. I'm going to start over and start reading all the King now. Which is like such a cool thing to uh, to hear, you know, that you're inspiring people to read. Great. If people were like, I rewatched all the movies, I'd be like, that's awesome. But to go actually go back to the original text, I think is one of the coolest things there. And boy, did we get a lot of feedback on your on your episode of the show with uh, Salem's Lot. You, as I said in the intro, you really knocked that one out of the park. Well, it's, I mean, I love that story and I love also the the kind of innate queerness of that story that that spoke to me much more dramatically than a lot of of his other books but Christine is another one that that's that has a a queer commentary and a queer read to it that is worth unpacking 
Right. That's right. Uh, a few days after the original Salem's Lot episode aired, you uh, you got in touch and you were like, so I've also got a read on Christine. And I'm like, done. <laughs> we're in. I need to know no more on this. Like, this is <laughs> this is excellent. Save um, it for the podcast. What have you been uh, what have you been doing over the last few months? What's been keeping you busy? I've I've been writing away and it's you know it's so fascinating our 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 hopefully upward spiral from uh the downward spiral that we had been experiencing for the past few years and <laughs> honestly it was such an interesting time to be writing during all of the the various national stressors and mm-hmm. I found uh, the last month or so of writing to be much more inspiring and invigorating than the previous four or five, because I was like, the world's on fire. We don't all see reality the same way. There was a kind of psychic dysmorphia that was spinning me out in a way. So I don't know how you, how you gentlemen felt about it, but I definitely felt the psychic toll of what was, what was happening. Well, there was a whiplash effect that uh, I think people are going to like look back and examine because the first month we're talking March, April, uh, when everything locked down, not to draw a direct parallel, but it was kind of like 9-11. Everybody felt the same way. There was shock. We have to all hunker down. We have to, you know, it felt like everybody was having the same experience, whether you're an A-list movie star or rock star, whatever, everybody was hunkering down we were all experiencing the same thing. And then like almost overnight, it went from, from we're all in this together to fuck you, my freedoms. Right. right. <laughs> and, 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 and it's, it, to, to me that that whiplash is, is something that I think fucked with me more than just about anything in this. And like my disbelief of, of the selfishness of, of, of people. And like, I, I knew that, that Americans aren't, <laughs> aren't, uh, you know, naturally selfless, but, uh, I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't believe how quickly that transition happened. It, it was very debilitating uh, for me as well. And that kind of, wait, why aren't you thinking? Like, why aren't you just following the rules? But does it hurt? It doesn't hurt you. <laughs> there's, there's, there's nothing. It's weird the first time you put on a mask in public and you don't do it. Guess what? After that, it just becomes a thing. Like you're putting on a hat. You know, it's like, I don't. I don't understand. It's like the the very least you could do is is so small and so and helps so much and and why why is that politicized? I have no idea. There's this guy I see like two three times a week at my. There's a gas station like two minutes from my house. Beyond my house, that's the building I've been inside most over the past eight months. You know, we sometimes go to the grocery store, but typically I go to that corner store once or twice a day for something. And there's a guy I see in there all the time. And his thing is he will approach the door and sort of throw his hands up in the air very dramatically, then dig into his pocket, pull out a mask. He'll look around to make sure someone in the parking lot is seeing him do this. You know, I've made eye contact with him before a couple of times doing this. Then he'll roll his eyes and sort of tilt his head back and put the mask on and like shuffle into the store. And then when he's in the store, he makes a big dramatic thing about it. Oh, it's so uncomfortable. And he's like scratching (laughs) at it. And then when he comes out of the door, he'll like remove it with a flourish and like, like, Oh, he's just been let out of prison after 20 years. And I want to beat this guy to death with his own fucking shoes. Like 
you're an adult. Put on the mask and just go in the fucking building. You don't have to stage a, a one man show out here in the parking lot <laughs> every time you do this. Well, I think that I think you're hitting on the thing that gave me such sort of creative despair was a fundamental loss of faith in humanity in a way that yes, humanity has always been questionable and and there are fallacies of all of us being created equal, which is just simply not true mentally, physically, societally, evolutionarily, and otherwise. Right. But there was something about the like, fuck, we're garbage. Like as a species. <laughs> yeah. That like ah. made me really uh really challenged me to in terms of focusing on on creative because it, it did feel uh like people were not up to the level of uh, that humanity must request of us and in the very basic terms, and that was really disconcerting what blows my mind about it is even if you're right and masks don't do anything what if you're not right and what does it hurt if you put it on anyway you know what i mean it's like even if you believe whatever random youtube conspiracy theory thing that you've you've seen more than you know the entirety of the scientific community even if you believe that what does it hurt it doesn't hurt you to put on a mask and and, uh, and if we're right guess what that's that that's right. the, the difference between life and death so like i i just don't understand where that disconnect comes from uh, just on a fundamental level i can i can understand it in my mind of seeing people you know for their freedom and and don't tell me what i can and can't do with my own blah 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 i can understand that mentally i just don't understand like in my heart in my soul why somebody wouldn't just go you know what in case they are right i might help somebody by doing honestly it doesn't it doesn't hurt me at all you know how there's some people that like they won't dress up in a costume you know you'll have a halloween party and they'll just show up with like the bare minimum like a witch's hat on or something, you know, and you're like, come on, man, get in the spirit of this fucking thing. But I think people like that are generally like that because they're afraid that people will look at them and think they look foolish. And I think that there's an element of that to this mask thing. Hmm. Like, even though everyone else is doing it, people will be like, look at me and think I'm weak or, you know, I, I look silly with a mask on. You know, and that somehow becomes a priority over keeping themselves safe and and everyone else. It's a weird sort of psychosis, whatever it is. I live for Halloween, so I, like, you want <laughs> me, me to wear a mask? I've got like dozens of them. I've got Arnold Schwarzenegger. I've got RoboCop. I've got Cylons. I've got everything, any sort of character or homage to some pop culture freakiness, I've got, and I'm happy to wear it. And I can't imagine not wearing them now. I'm going to like, I'm going to be wearing silly masks for the rest of my life. Yeah. It kind of rules. I think I like the anonymity of it. Well, and also like they, like you're, you're, the smize, like the the art of the smize, as Tyra Banks would say, and smiling with your eyes when your mouth is sort of like slack jawed and you're staring at them like they're fools. Are you, there's you can protect yourself from committing to that level of social confrontation with half of your face covered. So I love hiding my, you know, half of my face with my cards and holding them, you know, close <laughs> to, to uh, my chest or, or teeth as it were. So I, I love all of it. It's, it's harder it, for me to hide my contempt with, for you 
when I have to show my mouth. Just <laughs> let me have this. I can I can do the eye acting involved, but you know. Yes. <laughs> I just see pluses with masks. I just see right. pluses. I agree. I, I agree. you know, I there is a part of I I do miss seeing people's faces and and I do you know, like the idea of like I'm a big Disney Parks fan. Like I'm I'm one of those adult people that loves the Disney Parks. Um Me too. And, and the idea of going to a Disney park and not seeing like smiles on kids' faces and like grandparents, you know, enjoying themselves with the, like half of that, half of the fun of going to Disney parks for me is like people watching and seeing memories and stuff happen around me. Uh, so that does bum me out a little bit. But, uh, you know, a- again, at the end of the day, come on, guys, we're all in this together. I don't understand why this is even a conversation. Anywho, uh, <laughs> we are here we today to, to, uh, talk about as brian already noted uh christine um well we were previously talking about the shitters so it is a transition <laughs> from uh complaining about the shitters who won't wear a mask to uh the shitters that occupy this world i don't know i have a feeling like roland LeBay um would be an anti-masker for sure oh for sure for sure. Yeah, I, 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 there's there's no doubt. I think anything that anybody in society would approve or deem beneficial, he would frown upon. And it's it's so interesting to compare the the movie with the novel, which I've I've been rereading joyously. Like it struck me how much I miss reading the crispness of Stephen King's storytelling on a, on a regular basis. And it brought me back to just my adolescence where I devoured these, these novels. And I remember the, the winter of, of 1983 so explicitly because I experienced it through the prism of, of Christine and it's, it's kind of, not necessarily misanthropy. Like it's there, there was interesting awakening of, Oh wow. There are people who just hate. And it's something that is, is such a part of adolescence because I feel like we all kind of dance around whether to, to love or to hate or to Mm -hmm. like or to dislike. And, and so there was something about Christine and my adolescence and, you know, getting my first car, which I called Christopher, like completely <laughs> tone deaf to the fact that I was basically outing myself as, as a, as a young kid. And I remember my, uh, a friend of mine's sister was like, why are you calling it a boy's name? Like the, it wasn't the whole point of the book and it being a girl's name was that they were in love. And it, completely went over my head and I had no kind of, it, I was pre-sexual. So I didn't get that, the, the sort of romantic connotation of that relationship the way I do now and did, you know, ex- rereading the book and also re-experiencing the movie because they're, they're two completely different stories in many ways. Mm-hmm. What was your first car? A 1962 Chevy Biscayne. I have no idea what that looks like. I'm not a car guy, so I don't even know why I asked. It's but. a. Uh, it's not unlike Christine. It's a. Uh, it was a two door. It was my grandma's car, and there was definitely so many things about 
Arnie's relationship with his mother and the restrictions around having a car that I related to. I remember when I first got the car and first got a job, I was like, I'm going to go and take it to the shop and get it a tune up and, you know, replace the tires and all of these things. And I remember my mother had a fit because I went and did that without her permission. I woke up early on a Saturday and there was this sense of a loss of control that cars symbolize for, I think, parents and children. There's something that is, uh, that drives between those relationships and, and wedges them apart because cars are freedom. And so rereading independence. And that's a big, big thing. It's, it's, it's a very specific marker of a child's independence. And if a parent isn't willing to let go at that point, let go their, their little, you know, boy or little girl, I can see that being a, a, a big divisive issue. It never was in my family, but, uh, you know, I think my family was like, cool. Yeah, you got a car, you know, just don't crash it. You know, that was, right. the, you know, but, uh, but I can see how, you know, a certain, a certain uh, type of parent, and I've, I've met a lot of parents. I'm friends with some, <laughs> some parents who I, I know that when their kids get to that age, it's going to be real, real tough for them. And, and I can see some, some melting down going on. Do you think it's the, it's the independence issue or it's, it's something more than that? They're going to be in danger. No, at least the parents that I know, like it's totally, they're, they're codependent. Like they're, I'm thinking very specifically of, uh, uh, I don't think they listen to this, so I'm not going to get in trouble, but I'm, I'm, uh, uh, thinking very specifically of my nephew's, uh, mom. These, these are the kids that are like, I, I'm like the movie uncle to, and, and it's great. And I'm really excited to see like, uh, the older one just turned 13 and like, he's getting into that age where I'm like, this is great. We're getting close to where he's going to be able to understand. Like I can show him Pulp Fiction. I can show him some of these more adult things. And th- that's exciting to me. But like the mom, she wants her perpetually seven, eight year old little boy who thinks that the you know that she's the end all be all of of existence and when when that goes away i i can there's going to be friction i can already tell i have a very specific memory from when i was like 14 or 15 and i had an older friend and he was like the first one in our friend group to get a car and i remember the day he got his car coming over to my house and there were already a couple of our other friends in it and being like let's go ride around and um me sort of turning to my my folks and being like, Hey, I'm going to go take a ride in so-and-so's car. And it caused like a 10 minute sort of breakdown in, in the, like, you know, the, the foyer of the house. And eventually my dad just kind of turning to my mom and being like, this is going to happen sooner or later, you know, let's let him go. In terms of the, in terms of that new found freedom or newfound. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was, you know, kind of what we're talking about here. It's it's a combination of things. It's the it's the concern that your child might get hurt, you know, and fucking really. Uh I was 16 years old. I know how dumb 16-year-olds are. You know, they're <laughs> not they're not careful. I remember how I drove when I was 16, which was uh, a horror show of a fucking situation. Um you think you're invincible at, at that age. So I understand the danger element, but it's also uh, a loss of control from the parents. Now your child can be out like roaming the streets to, to a much greater degree than they could on a bike, you know, and who knows what they're getting into. And, you know, and also the understanding that your child no longer depends on you for this, this thing, you know, growing up is a matter of letting go of those things for the parents and the kids, I think. So 
Well, what I found so interesting with, with my personal friend group is that we all had these old cars. So I had a 62 Chevy Biscayne. A friend of mine had a Mercury. Another friend had a Comet. And they were all these these classic cars. And there was something about the sentimentality of and the worldliness of the experience of adopting this entity into your life that had had previous experiences. It was like having an older lover in, in many mm-hmm. ways because they had the, the object had a worldliness to it that I feel, you know, very subtextually, there was something really interesting happening with, you know, and it's different. It's a different expression in the movie than it is in the book. And I've talked a little bit to Keith Gordon about the film Christine being about sexual fluidity and the love triangles that are are happening throughout the narrative. And that love triangle, including his mother, that you know, in Regina Cunningham, is a young sexy mom she's a total milf and she (laughs) has this controlling relationship with the men in her life and in in the movie the expression is is relatively narrow compared to what it is in the book but it is this woman who is very much dom to the subs in her life and her son is a sub and her husband is a sub and she has a control of of them and their livelihoods around her and when that control is threatened it's like breaking up with a narcissist you can't Mm -hmm. they they won't let you and so in the movie it's just sort of like she's this high riding bitch and a very stern lady and in the novel there's a wonderful chapter that just goes to why she is is all of those things and it gives her a humanity that the movie doesn't necessarily have the real estate to to give you but there is something about the control factor between both of the parents and because Arnie's father, Michael, is a sub to this this domineering woman. There, like he doesn't really have the voice to speak up against her and uh, refuses to. But there are love triangles throughout the story, and there's a love triangle with the parents. You know, it's definitely you know a warmth that's going on between Michael and Arnie, the dad and the son, that is almost in in fearful defiance of 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 Regina, the mom, because if she finds out, then you know, she will retaliate in some way, not unlike Christine. So there's there's these interesting alpha females that that run through the narrative that are are really interesting when you stop and say like, okay, Christine is also an alpha female. And not only are there love triangles between Lee and Arnie and Dennis, but it's Lee and Christine and Arnie. It's Arnie and Christine and Dennis. And it's Arnie and LeBay and Christine. And so it's really when 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 Keith Gordon was like Christine the movie is about sexual fluidity it's hard not to look at all of the relationships through some kind of subdom interpretation of how we interact with those that we love and want to be owned by or want to own in some way and 
putting that all into a objectification narrative through the car is really, really interesting. There's also, I'd love to get your read on this too, uh, the bully aspect as well, because like the go-to move for like Moochie, first thing he does in the confrontation is grab Dennis's crotch. Right. right? right. <laughs> you know, and, and that's something that Carpenter like made a, a point to include in the movie too. Like he gives a nice close up of, of a moochie honk in Dennis's balls. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and so even, even in the, the, the bullying aspect of it, the violence that comes from there, there, there is a weird sexuality to that as well. It's, it's interesting. Cause I remember in boy scouts, one of the things that they told us or taught us how to do or how to, uh, navigate a panic swimmer was to grab their junk and wrench it. And the what? Like, <laughs> wait, the, was this the serial killer that told you to do this? <laughs> uh, uh, no, no. I think it was in the man. I think it was in the manual. And what was interesting about it was if someone is panicking you or panicking and has and poses a threat to you and might may drown you in the process of their panic. You, you know, if it's male, you wrench their testicles and the, the pain may cut through their panic in a way that calms them down. Hmm. But for me as a young man, I was like, Oh, that's like, I just like would skip right to that. Like where it was, if any sort of like wrestling, you just sock them in the nuts yeah, and right. that's how you would, you would navigate that situation. So when, <laughs> when like King introduces that as, you know, with, with Moochie wrenching Dennis's uh, genitalia, I was like, Oh, I would do that if I were in a situation where I had to take somebody out immediately. Uh, <laughs> I love the idea of problem solving, you know, in any yeah. scenario. By just grabbing someone by the dick. It's like, <laughs> how do you like how do you make a fire? First of all, find someone in the area and grab their dick. <laughs> like <laughs> I learned this in the handbook. It's fine. You know, it's the scouts, the scouts say. Um, so there is there's an interesting sexuality to that. Like if you look at the movie scene in particular, there's there's a lot of a strange kind of homoerotic, homo-hostile, you know, uh, activity. Like, Buddy literally turns around and is kind of, like, reaching for Arnie's crotch when he's saying, like, you know, take your lunch away from me. There's the penetration of the switchblade into his lunch, which gushes milky fluid because he had (laughs) yogurt in his sack. And so there's all of this stuff that if you wanted to really make a meal of the sexual innuendo, you could. But I think that a lot of that stuff kind of boils down to just the, the cruelty of boys and uh or the cruelty of young people because uh young girls have their own expressions of cruelty that are just as disturbing right we've Uh, read carrie yes well and this is Mm -hmm. this is the spiritual sister to carrie isn't it you know they are they are siblings christine and carrie are siblings in so many ways and i feel like the adaptation of christine because so much of the novel focuses on the family dynamics and the disillusion of uh, the family unit with Arnie coming to his own, 
through the car, there's really a lot of parallels. The strength of Regina Cunningham, when you compare her to Margaret White, like mm-hmm. they're both these domineering mothers, like the, the husband, the father figure is relatively absent and inconsequential in both families, even though one is present uh, and the other one doesn't exist because, you know, the, the whiskey. So there's, there's a lot of similar thematics that King is exploring that are, are hard to deny. And the bullying, certainly, we get the, the, a taste of how girls bully and Carrie and a taste of how boys bully and Christine. And there's something about the particular focus in the novel on the family unit and the, the, other focus in the film being about sort of high school dynamics uh, being, you know, more in the foreground than they are in the novel is, is interesting because I feel like the adaptation was, was looking at Carrie and saying, you know, here's how you adapt a Stephen King novel and here's how you ground it in the accessible world of, of high school character dynamics that I feel like when I was watching it again, I kept on thinking like, Oh, they, they must've really studied Carrie when they crafted this adaptation. Well, it's interesting comparing the bullying uh, again, how, how it's amazing to me, like looking at those two side by side and seeing how, the girls and Carrie, the way that they bully is way more emotionally devastating. And the way the boys bully and Christine's all, all about violence It's all brute force. You know, it's, it's not about wanting to beat up Carrie. It's about wanting to embarrass her in front of the school. Right. It's like that, that, that's, that's what, what they're bullying is. It it is interesting to see, I guess that's how King looks at, uh, you know, the different ways that uh, the genders can be cruel to, to their own. Yeah, it's it's very much um, it is it is gender specific in a way that gender is is kind of played with and right. and this uh, this storyline there is a constant kind of refusal to acknowledge Christine as her feminine pronoun and the frustration that both. Lee and Dennis experience whenever Christine is referred to as, uh, as female and how that is a, not necessarily an affront, but it is something that they don't like. And it feels like it goes against societal mores, which is why I really feel, and I've, and I've had these conversations with trans friends, uh, that that Christine is a trans allegory in in many ways because there is something that is projecting itself or identifying itself as female and society is bristling at that declaration and ultimately sets out to punish her for her identification as female in a way that that feels very very queer and one of the the things that's that has been interesting in just having conversations with with uh trans friends on this subject is that there's a long tradition of stories in trans erotica where a man is transformed into something, into an object that is gendered female. 
And what is interesting about that is part of the fantasy of of becoming an object or a feminine identifying object is that your agency is taken away from you in terms of your identity. So there is something really interesting about this, you know, a lot of trans erotica is about losing control. And if you are a dress, you are a dress. And if you are a car, you are a car. And part of that is because trans people have to work so hard to declare their identity. They have to have so much agency in their identity because they're outside of the norm. And there's a constant sort of rationalization that they have to perform to those who, who don't understand. Whereas, you know, those of us who are cisgender are, you know, the idea of you or us as a cis man, there is an agency and a power that is held, societally speaking, particularly if you're white, particularly if you're straight, that is something that trans people don't necessarily share or experience. And so there, there, there comes this kind of fetishization of identity through having agency taken away from you so you can just declare yourself as who you are without having to work so hard to do it, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Am I making sense? Yes. Yes. So I think that there's there's like this liberation to an idea uh, that that you are yourself and everyone accepts it and there's no need for you to work for it. That when I when I look at Christine and somebody says like oh it's a car, it does kind there's a Venn diagram between Christine and a lot of trans erotica that is about the declaration of yourself as an object. So it's it's you're boiled down into the simplest terms of identity and that is just automatically accepted. Right. They don't have to fight for gender identity right. in, that, in that object. And that was something that I found really interesting. And I was, I was trying to understand it myself through, you know, okay, I, I think it would be problematic to say that, that trans people don't want to have agency in their identity. But I think that there is something that allows us to understand the trans experience a little bit more if you if you if you're simply stating like it's exhausting to have to explain yourself to everybody when a white cis gender straight man is just automatically accepted for what they are and and just by being and isn't there a great liberty in having that same sense of immediate recognition of who you are and isn't that a beautiful thing and so i think that's where the fantasy comes from is being immediately identified without explanation without judgment and you know one of the things that that is part of this objectification fantasy is that when we place our identity outside of ourselves, even though it may be an identity that identity that we are scared of, but looking at it in a context outside of ourselves, it's almost easier to understand. So that's another kind of way of, of looking at uh, how this, this film and this narrative 
really crosses gender lines in a much more complicated way than perhaps the author even intended. And I'm sure Stephen King would hear this and say, you're as high as I was when I wrote this. (laughs) There's, there's that aspect too, but I think that's, that's part of the fun of looking at these stories that are sort of tried and true and haven't, you know, you haven't popped the hood of the thematics, so to speak, to look underneath and say like, okay, what, what is exactly the engine that is driving the, the, the complexities of, of Christine as a character, as, you know, like, in one instance, like the film, if you look at the film, it's kind of about a guy who wants to fuck his car. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it, it yeah. show me, show right, me. Exactly. And that's so sexy when he does that. It's so, it's, so, it's such a wonderful bonding moment. And then of course, you know, because it's a really elegant adaptation, so much of the, the details of the book are, are simplified. Uh, in a way that you don't get the nuances of of certainly some of the the love story between Arnie and Dennis. It is very much a love story, and there's something so fascinating about how straight men in these dynamics experience an intense love at that that time of their lives, and how. Dennis is jealous of the car. He's jealous that Arnie is focusing on the car and not their friendship. He's there's there's sort of a commentary of the 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 tickling, like there was tickling between them, which was sort of like, oh dear, like <laughs> tickling. Yeah. So there's that kind of eroticism that was in the book that felt very kind of pubescent and experimental and also open to interpretation. And that's one of the things that like King plays with the outsider so expertly that I don't know if he understands to the extent that he speaks to queer communities because of his total understanding of the outside perspective. I, you know, I, I want to loop back around to something you said a few minutes ago and ask a question about it. Like the idea that the trans experience is so frequently exhausting. This is an exact thought I had the other day when Elliot Page came out as trans and said, going forward, I'm Elliot Page. These are my pronouns. And the the volume of people that I saw just on Twitter, you know, no one I follow, but I was seeing this shit like retweeted in my feed or people fighting with these people that were just outraged by this or finding a reason to bitch about it. And I felt like how fucking exhausting must it be to just want to live your existence in this world and have some jerk off on fucking Twitter, have an opinion about it. There is obviously a segment of the population that will just not allow people to be who they want to fucking be. It drives me crazy. So I can't even imagine what the in, the internal experience is like for specifically a trans person. It goes back to the mask thing. What does it hurt you to, to call him Elliot Page now? What skin is it off your back? Just, you know, just fucking do it. Why do you think that people are just there are not people, but there are some people that are are unwilling to make that step for others? Like, what do you, what do you think that is? 
I think it's fear. I think it's, it's, you know, we have our, our brains sort of coagulate around ideas very quickly. Once we understand something, everything seizes up and, and cements. That's, right. that's the way it is. And, and all challengers to those cemented ideas are met with fear if you come from a certain mindset. And that's why, you know, when I, I've seen this movie many times and have read, you know, rereading the book. I, I kept on thinking about like, boy, Dennis and Lee have a big problem using Christine's preferred pronoun, you know, and it's uh, hard not to, to sort of look at it in, in that way, because, you know, yes, it's a horror movie and yes, it's, you know, a villain. And, uh, you know, so that comes with its own sort of like, level of problematic comparisons, but it's hard to ignore in this day when you have Elliot Page declaring how he wants to be seen by the world and, you know, not being able to draw a comparison to a character who identifies as female and the people who care about that character are recognizing its preferred gender pronouns and others who are the heteronormative characters in the piece uh, having a problem with that, having a problem of declaring yourself as something that society says no to. And so right off the bat, at the beginning of the story, you have people not allowing Christine to be who Christine is saying she is. And it's hard not to empathize with that in some way. It's like, how hard would it be for you just to call Christine, a she or a her, because that's what is being requested of you, mm-hmm. of you mm-hmm. but it bothers you every time that you say it. So that's, you know, that's another reason why I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is a trans allegory. Christine is a trans allegory. <laughs> there's something about this, whatever entity it is that is occupying Christine and we're not sure in the movie and we're not sure in the book, uh, but there are suggestions on, uh, you know, that there is a, you know, in the book, you're like, it's a little unclear because you're like, okay, is it, is it just Roland LeBay, like controlling from the grave or did Roland LeBay create or invite this entity, this female entity? And I think it is described as a female entity at one point in the book when Dennis is trying to put together like what happened and he finds out that, uh, Roland LeBay's daughter, Rita, was, uh, you know, when she was outside of a car choking, but he wanted to make sure that she died inside in the, car. the car and brought, right. like, put her body in before she was uh, totally dead. And that was kind of a sacrifice of sorts to invite this female entity into the car, into their lives, and that Rita, daughter Rita, was the first sacrifice. Um, so there's, there's something about not truly understanding the nature of Christine that keeps it a mystery because is it the overlook on wheels? Like there is a certain kind of collection that it is, is crafting with the, the sacrifices it has made in the, uh, the chapter where Arnie drives Dennis home on New Year's Eve. He looks into the rear view mirror and sees Rita and, and sees Roland LeBay's wife and sees Buddy Repperton and, you know, uh, Trelawney and Moochie Welch all in the back seat. So it feels like, a lot of the ghostliness of The Shining is is definitely 
being worked out or extrapolated in a different form in Christine as as the Overlook on Wheels. And so we're we're never quite sure. That's why, you know, all of this is interpretation and all of this is sort of like, oh, isn't it fun to look for the layers that may be intended or not intended? But um, we're never quite clear what Christine is, but there is a specific statement in the book about it being a female energy of some kind, whether it's a demon or it's an, you know, an otherworldly entity. It does have magical abilities that bend time around this car in a way that we didn't experience in the movie because the movie was very, you know, clean and clear in its narrative. But the, the, the narrative of the book is a little, in, a, in the most wonderful way, messier in, in terms of interpretation. And that is one of the reasons why I love, you know, like The Shining, I love the book and I love the movie because they are completely different expressions of similar thematics. Mm-hmm. Now, I've done a little reading on this, and it's funny you mentioned that uh, that bending time aspect because you're right, in the movie – Christine acts like Bumblebee in the Transformers, right? She'll, <laughs> she'll, she'll play, she'll play like don't, she'll play an oldies song that is her saying, "Hey, don't open, don't knock on my window, or whatever." You know, you know she'll play that. a little Richard song or whatever to leave me alone, kind of thing. Uh, but in the in the book, she is like literally channeling a live radio from the fifties. Like you're hearing disc jockeys and stuff from, from that era. And news um, reports. And news like, reports. Oh, that's interesting that they're, they're actually playing news reports from the fifties and sixties. And it's like, yeah. you know, and that, that, that's all to me, that's, that's more interesting. And I, I really, you know, I think you're onto something with the reason why uh, Christine is open to so much interpretation is because King leaves it uh, purposefully vague. We just did a something on uh, different seasons. I remember reading, I think it's in the afterwards to different seasons. Like he pitched that book. He's like, this is my book where it's not going to be horror stuff. And the publisher's like, cool, great. But you got another horror stuff come something coming up like right away. Right. And, uh, and he said, yeah, have, how's a haunted car sound to you? And they're like, great, great. Perfect. Thank God. You know, it's not just a drama novellas. And so he pitched like in his mind somewhere, he does have the thought, this is a haunted car. But I, I've also read interviews where he's bristled at that reading where he literally said, here, let's see if I can pull up the exact quotes. It, it's a haunted car, and I think your idea is a lot closer to the truth. Somebody said if it was The Shining on Wheels. It's a haunted car, and I think your idea is a lot closer to the truth than the people who say, well, this Roland LeBay has possessed the car. Or that the car is just a rolling ghost of Roland LeBay. I don't think that's true at all. Uh, what he did say was that if there's a, a supernatural creature that's a closer one to one, he said it's a vampire, which I think is a very interesting fact considering that now we've had you on for <laughs> for two uh, Stephen King stories that King views as vampire stories. It's it's very much a vampire story because I I thought a lot about let the right one in or mm. you know in in reading this again because you do have the older sort of familiar who's who's you know run his course in supporting this young right. vampire young presenting vampire who we understand from the book and from the original film with the quick glimpse of the stitches over the crotch that this was a young boy who transformed himself into a young girl because that would be easier to have 
familiars take care of her if she was seen as a you know as as the female of the species and being more vulnerable and so there's a a wonderful queer interpretation not queer interpretation it's, it's text right write one in that is not terribly dissimilar from what's happening with Christine and and LeBay being the you know it's it's you know with Miriam Blaylock he's just another one of the bodies but he happened to be the first body in this entity because he's the one who got the car but all the other sacrifices are 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 exist within Christine in that kind of attic coffin space that Miriam Blaylock had in the hunger where all of her past loves or you know have have been keeping her company from their semi-conscious state so it feels like there's something very much about that power of collecting ghosts and collecting badness and you know like the the overlook hotel it holds on to these things and and christine's doing something similar psychically with the bad mojo and whether it's turning people into rotten versions of themselves so they feel more at home riding in the back seat of you know such a dark entity even the, even the hitchhiker was like this car like everybody gets a vibe from this car and a smell, right? It smells, but they keep saying it smells bad over and over again. Yeah. Which, which was interesting because there's so, there's so many wonderful details about the book that are kind of streamlined in the movie, but the movie still is very effective in, in a lot of those, those thematics. So it's, it's it's the smell it's, it's the rotten smell of Roland LeBay. It's the kind of late in the game revelation of you know he sacrificed his wife and his child to this you know female energy that that was occupying his car. And uh, I, I guess I, like so did did King say that it was more like. The overlook, as opposed to being possessed by Roland LeBay. He, yes, yeah, he said that it, that the closer comparison is is more of an overlook thing, but not it's not a possess possession story of of he's, he thinks people misread it as um, uh, Roland LeBay passing and and be possessing the car. But he he pointed out that the vampire thing was more on the front of his mind, and there, that's there's more literal things like when the odometer it's feeding and the odometer runs backwards and it becomes younger. You know, it's like all that stuff is very much kind of mixed together well one of the things that i loved about the novel that's not in the in the movie at all is the back brace and recurrence of the back brace and sort of this where arnie turns into to roland in in a way right yeah he's he's has the the same back brace but then you reveal like and there's a mystery around like how did i throw my back out and he keeps on telling making you know making up lies and that's another factor in in arnie in the novel that's so upsetting is that he's trying to gaslight everybody around him because he knows something is wrong but he's kind of in this you know love haze of of his you know he's under christine's spell so he can't remember things clearly and then he remembers why he got the back brace because he's like why did why did i get the back brace and it was because and it's it's described in this in very sexual terms Mm -hmm. 
in 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 the novel, which is him sort of runting and uh, straining and pushing behind Christine as if you were mounting her from behind and pushing her around uh, in circles so her odometer would go backwards and she would start to regenerate. But he was making love to her in a sort of sexual position and threw his back out and who can't relate to that <laughs> yeah i, I know fucking that's love having you on this times. show this is so good <laughs> <laughs> i like i was like i have i have been there i have i have thrown my back out during athletic sex and that is exactly what happened with arnie and christine in a way and it's the it's the closest that that king comes to actually describing uh, anything sort of anything like the act of sex between them is this image of him pushing around and he, and he, and he delays it and he sort of hints at it and, and intimates certain aspects of it. But then when he finally gives you the image, it's, he has been building up the audience's anticipation of like, what is the relationship with Arnie and his car and saving this, you know, description of what you could arguably be a sexual act and it's kind of fantastic. <laughs> I've never injured myself in a sexual escapade, but I did once call into work once uh, when I was, <laughs> I was, I was, I was waiting table somewhere or bartending. I forget, but uh, I called in and said that I had been having rough sex and uh, injured myself. And one of my balls had swelled up too big. And I couldn't walk around, and so I couldn't come to work. And the the manager I was on the phone with was like, uh, "Sounds good, got it." Click. Like, <laughs> just a free tip for our listeners: if you ever need to call in to a service industry job, just make it as embarrassing as possible, and they will buy it. If you say you have strep throat, they're not going to hear it. They're going to want to see a doctor's note. No one wants to see your swollen ball, though. <laughs> I have a question for you guys: Do you think that Christine is scary? Yes, I think that I think the book is actually really terrifying. And it's really? interesting because what is it's not just about the kills, which I think are really creative and interesting and uh, and, and well crafted sequences. But I think what the mo the more insidious scare of the novel is the idea of losing somebody that you love and not knowing why and not being able to help them and how desperate and sad that experience is when you see somebody that is a shell of themselves and whether the, the metaphor is drugs or uh, any sort of, you know, illicit uh, activities, there's something so sad about losing somebody that you thought you knew that you no longer know. That's a different kind of scary. Yeah. But when you put that into context into the, and that's why I think Stephen King is so brilliant. Uh, cause there was, there was something. 
there's, there's parallels in, in a lot of his books. Like I, I go to um, the Glick parents in Salem's Lot when they tried to have sex after they lost their kids. And then they, they couldn't complete the act because it just both of them broke into tears because it was just too much. And it, like every sort of anything sexual reminded them of their children who they had lost. And it was just devastating. And similarly, but different in this Michael and Regina Cunningham, when uh, when they are starting to lose Arnie and they realize, oh shit, all of the, like Arnie was the, the best child that he could be right up until this moment that he got Christine. He was, he did everything correctly and they started having a lot of sex, but it like, as, as I, I think uh, Michael Cunningham intimates in, in uh, one of the lines is that he, his wife was just using his penis as a stress reliever because she was so upset about what was happening with Arnie and he needed to control something. So I feel like there is a great sadness and scariness that is, is real about Christine that's outside of the kills. In the movie, there's a lot of like, what, buddy, why are you running down the middle of the road? Like, what are you doing? You know, there's a whole field there that I'm sure is bumpy. It's going to slow this car down. And you're running down the middle of the road. Obviously, it's for great cinema. And Christine is one of John Carpenter's most beautiful films. It's gorgeous. So I get how some would say this is not scary. But I feel like, for me, the thematics of what's happening around the characters make this sort of the fun scares actually more authentically scary, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Do you not feel scary? No, I don't think it's scary. (laughs) I I agree. I I agree with everything you just said, but in the traditional sense of scary, I I don't find it scary. I I can't argue with, I I can't argue with anything you said, you know, but um, the idea just, I mean, boiling this down to its basest element and being really reductive about it. And I understand I'm doing that, but the idea of a haunted car, I just don't find that scary. But sort of undermining that whole statement is the idea that I think from a Buick 8 is pretty scary, you know, but that's more about that's a different thing. You know, that now we're getting into sci-fi territory and the fear of the unknown and fear of thing, like the xenophobia that comes along with encountering a life form that is wholly unique to you. That I find scary. So I guess technically that's a haunted car thing, but um, I I feel like that applies because the novel is so fresh in my mind because I just reread it. There's so much of the, the corpse of LeBay that the apparitions that appear inside the car and even the, the final, you know, the final moments with, with Regina and Arnie and the way they died in the novel, I find so upsetting and tragic because Arnie actually tried to fight LeBay off when he tried to re-occupy him in a way and tried to save himself and his mother from one of the villains of the piece. And that was sort of, you know, an interesting kind of sadness to like, oh, you know, we we lost them. And we, we saw this family completely fall apart because of this external influence. And then, you know, in the movie, it's a different expression because 
Arnie is inside the car, unlike, you know, the way he was, he was not in the books. And the last moment between Arnie and Christine is he's stroking. It's V he's stroking the vagina. And he's like running his finger a- a- over it. After he's been penetrated by her, no less, he removes yes, the, piece of glass. the glass, like the glass of the windshield. The like, so he's, he's been pegged by Christine. Terminally, and, terminally and then, pegged. You know, rubbing her V on her, <laughs> on the front of, of the car. And so it's, it, you know, those moments are a completely different extrapolation of the sad fear that the, the sort of dread and loneliness. And, uh, you know, I go back to sort of a queer storyline, which, you know, often in, in any sort of narrative queers have to die. Uh, it's, you know, whether it's a lingering kind of haze code, uh, rule are <laughs> are sort of like oh well you, this character is other so you might care about them more so we're going to kill them to make you feel more even though that's not a good rationale at all but you do feel for their their love at the end in the film in a way that in the novel you feel like there are shifts and there's a much blurrier obfuscated take on relationships in the novel that in the, in the film had to be very crystal clear. And Mm -hmm. that last moment where he's dying, stroking her V and uh, you go back to like, Oh, what would have happened if everybody just left them alone? What would have happened if they just, everybody just let their love be like, there wouldn't have been. That's a very good question. That's a very good question. And that's another reason why it sort of what resonated. would have happened. What do you think would have happened? Well, if if Buddy and Moochie and Don and all of those other shitters would have left them alone, they wouldn't have been murdered. Like if they would, if you, like if you don't start some, you won't get some. Hey, I kind of I kind of get the impression though that they're at a certain point, Arnie becomes on the lookout for shitters and anybody who crosses him in any certain way, the, the V sites are now on them. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, the, I, I the feel final like form. the escalation was going no matter what they, they weren't just going to go off and go, you know, get a cabin together and live, live their live out their days. I, I feel like that they, the hate that was being totally. fed by them was going to result in, in violence. Yeah. The final, the final form of Arnie is just a straight up serial murderer. Right. Like, and it's, it's an interesting and I think a wonderful performance by Keith Gordon navigating the sort of aw shucks nerdiness of Arnie into the, you know, psychopath that exists. But, you know, even saying that this is a, a, a trans allegory is, is, is problematic because you're saying that the villain is trans and that goes right, like right, right. rest to kill. And that takes us to, to, you know, science of the lambs. And it's a long history of sort of, trans reading sort of villains and you know with all of those things like if we had more representation with trans characters it wouldn't be a problem and you could have a trans villain from time to time but we don't so it is an issue but there is something interesting about all of those stories that is if society just accepted people Mm -hmm. the way they wanted to be accepted 
all of this friction, all of the adversity that happens because of drama and the narrative needs it to happen to tell, you know, a, an effective story wouldn't be because people would say like, oh, you love your car, you call it a she, you're sticking your dick in its tailpipe and shoving it around the the back lot so its speedometer goes backwards and its its tires reinflate. Good for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if that were if that were the expression, then none of the other stuff would happen. Okay. In relation to this idea of the trope of trans people being villains, I have a right. question for you. I rewatched Silence of the Lambs not too long ago, and it's just like, it's fucking incredible. That movie is just it's an amazing movie, just top tier. How do you reconcile the problematic notion of Jane Gum in Silence of the Lambs versus our politics today? Well, I think like for me, I can only speak personally. And, you know, the the comparison that I always use in this situation is Baby, It's Cold Outside. Do I think it's a song about rape? No, but I respect if you do and it triggers you in that way. So I'm not going to play it at my Christmas party. I think that's just sort of common decency. If you are offended by something, I accept that. And I, I will, I will try not to poke you where you hurt. And so I feel like with something like Science of the Lambs, which, you know, is very near and dear to my heart, obviously, obviously. because I love and I love the mythology and there's something about Jane Gum that is heartbreaking and also terrifying and you know I see for trans people it's upsetting because there is a a vilification of their identity without context and and that is is where we get into trouble is that we don't have enough positive stories about trans people to offset the the bobbies from Dress to Kill. Although I think Bobby is dissociative identity disorder and closer to Norman Bates, obviously, because that's what De Palma was going after than it is with Buffalo Bill, who is a trans character. And you know, I think if I were adapting Silence of the Lambs. I would try to dig deeper into the trans world and the trans experience to offset the imbalance of Buffalo Bill as the only trans character in the story and a villain. Therefore, trans people are villains. I get how that is a a connection that less sophisticated people will make and use as an argument to commit violence against trans people. And therefore... Mm -hmm be acknowledged and it has to be respected and it has to be uh identified for what it is but i think if i were doing silence of the lambs i would want to populate the world and the storytelling with more trans characters that are going to 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 do a better job than a line of dialogue that says trans people are are very passive and nice. And so therefore they're not like the rest of trans people, which is kind of a, like, don't be mad at us. We're trying to make a qualifier, but right. it's a line of dialogue as opposed to a, a load bearing element of your story. You know, I hope that when trans people listen to this podcast or trans allies, listen to this podcast, that, my viewing Christine as a trans allegory 
is about reading a queer awareness into a narrative and sort of trying to create a conversation that may help other people who aren't exposed to a trans experience better understand what it's like to be trans and the challenges of being trans in a world where being instantly identifiable as what you were born to be is an unfair advantage uh, over them and that that is kind of a way to to understand the trans experience by using storytelling. And one of the things I'm working on this this documentary about how queer people experience horror films on, and you know the conversation that I had with Emily Vanderwolf, uh, who is a trans woman, I talked a lot to her about this because I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to say anything untoward or un that's going to offend people because I really want to say isn't there something in here that we can sort of talk about to have a better understanding for those who don't understand what the trans experience is? And one of the, my favorite conversations with Emily was, you know, and when we interviewed her for this, this queer horror doc, which is the sequel to horror noir, which if you haven't seen it is about the, the black person's experience with horror narratives and a history of black people in horror films. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, seek it out. It it's is excellent. Wonderful. It's wonderful. So, so this documentary that I'm working on is a sequel to that night. And one of the questions that we asked Emily was, when was the first time that you saw yourself in, in a horror narrative? And she said, Reagan McNeil in The Exorcist, because I was a little girl whose body was taken over by a male presence. And it took me decades to exercise that male presence and reclaim my womanhood that was taken away from me by the demon that is puberty. That is like my body, like betraying what my thoughts were. And that blew my mind because I had never thought of the possession genre through the prism of, of a trans narrative. And I found that so enlightening. And yes, there's there's all sorts of things that you could say like, well, this is problematic because of these elements in the story and and therefore uh, you know shouldn't necessarily be discussed. But I feel like like if we can discuss them, I feel like we'll better have an understanding of people who who are having a different experience than us. Right. And right. I, I really saw that in Christine. I really saw a as a queer man uh, looking at the story and thinking like, oh, he wants to love something that people don't want him to love, and that is so resonant for me and my experience as a human being that. Yes, because it's in a horror narrative, like there are certain judgments cast upon the quote unquote queer reading characters in the narrative, but that doesn't obviate the relatability of those characters, whether it is Reagan and the Exorcist as, as a, as a trans allegory or Christine as a trans allegory. I feel like talking around these things in, in metaphor help us understand the poetry of humanity. And that's sort of the interpretation of humanity as opposed to something like Science of the Lambs, where it's very, it's very linear. It's very binary. 
Mary and it's, they didn't let him have a sex chain. So he's going to make a woman's suit out of the women that he kills. And that's a horrific idea. And, and part of me thinks it's a brilliant idea. It's a, it's such a, a horrifying, fascinating, awful thing to consider for a character, but because of representation being what it is, it's tricky. And so I guess to answer your question is, um, I hope we're not doing the same thing with this podcast. <laughs> All right. I mean, it is, it's, it's so complicated and it's none of our experiences. Uh, sure. So we can't speak authentically to it, but I, I like to think that, and I could be totally wrong, but I like to think that as a compassionate person that there is a path forward by discussing it as opposed to running from it. And yes, there are going to be landmines that are stepped on and, you know, there's, there's something to the, the openness and also the ability to see the struggle and sort of say to our trans brothers and sisters and non-binary trans folks that we see you, we love you. We're trying to make a better place for you. And it's so much in that, that original kind of reveal of trans erotica being a lot about losing agency in your identity so you can just like if somebody takes the choice away from you about who you are then actually in a strange way you can just be yourself and then that's how people would see you is just as yourself is something that's that's sort of beautiful and something that I feel like we can draw lessons to from anybody, everybody's experience. And I think what we are waking up to just in terms of the evolution of humanity, and we are evolving, we're evolving spiritually and intellectually in a way that some would argue things like Trump happened to hold us in a, in a, uh, in a position so we can all kind of evolve together in the next uh, next jump forward mm-hmm. because we're all not, we're not all there yet. So sometimes we need things to slow us down as a society so we can make a leap forward together in unity. And I feel like a lot of the conversations of, and a lot of the awareness of different states of, of being and relationship to your body that some of us take for granted are not the same for other people. And, if a conversation creates a greater understanding to build the bridge to acceptance so a trans person can just be who they are without having to rationalize to somebody who is cisgender and and to have that kind of identity conversation taken out of their responsibility so they can just be themselves as opposed to working so hard to explain to to people who are not like them who they are then then maybe that is sort of the bumpy part of this stage of us understanding as a society how to be inclusive of all types of human beings because there's a wide variety I'm hoping that anybody who's listening to this that is is trans, that there is a lot of love and support and understanding, but we'll never be able to fully understand a trans person's experience without being a trans person. Very well said.
you were talking about what was really effective about this story. Um, I, I, I'm going to go ahead and put a disclaimer out there right now that I'm not the biggest fan of this book um, or the movie. Uh, I like it. I, I, I feel like it's lesser Carpenter. I feel like it's lesser uh, of that run of King that he had in that, in that time period personally um, for what it spoke to me. But the last 50 pages of this book are all timer stuff for me. The, the final confrontation with Christine and the whole idea of Arnie being, uh, you know, setting himself up as always having to be out of town to give himself an alibi because he's not the one killing these people, but he knows that he will, he and Christine both know he will be the one blamed for it. If he doesn't have an alibi for any of these deaths. Um, I like all that stuff. The final confrontation where, it's Dennis and Lee trying to trying to kill Christine, essentially setting up the board so they can try to kill Christine while Arnie's out of town. It is expertly written. I love that there's a moment. Well, Christine surprises them for one and almost kills Lee in in the movie. She's just kind of standing there in the background the whole time. But in the in the book, she's like she's bloody. She's you know she's hit by the car. She you know, like all this stuff. She is she barely survives the the encounter. And the thing that that sticks with me in terms of the creepy factor is whenever Christine like belches out uh, Arnie's dead dad, like and you realize that uh, that it killed Arnie's dad before it came to this confrontation and has been carrying around his corpse and just kind of throws it. (laughs) He just kind of falls out of the car at some point like that. Whatever reason sticks with me. But uh, I think that what I wanted to touch on and, and throw out to you guys is how the ending really to me solidifies the fact that there's two things going on simultaneously here. There's Christine and whatever she is and, and has been and whatever entity is in the car uh, is one thing. And then also the LeBay possession is more happening with Arnie separately, you know? And I, I find that like one of the most interesting things about this, this whole story is that, that Arnie is turning into LeBay. It's it's not just the back brace. It's he's using LeBay. He's smoking the same cigars LeBay was smoking. He's he's uh he's using shitters. He's using all the same terminology, and he's turning into the personality of LeBay. Um, and so you can almost argue that there's a possession story happening at the same time as whatever Christine is the 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 overlook on wheels aspect of it. Um, and so maybe that can be a a, a spot for us to to talk about. Michael's death, Mr. like Michael Cunningham's death, is so sad because you see, like already, this guy has been through the ringer in this this relationship that he has with Arnie's mother, and clearly loves her, but you know has had to put his own identity in the back seat, you know, to let her drive their lives, and le- and so both Arnie and his father Michael have been passengers in their lives in different ways. That last phone call that Dennis makes to to Michael that where he's where Michael says like is it the car and Dennis comes clean and says yes it's the car and he's like I knew it and he's already drunk he's already sort of descended into a a certain dependency on alcohol because the reality of the situation is just too much for him to handle and so when when Christine does sort of like spit up his corpse like you know Mrs Voorhees throwing a camp council <laughs> window right. there's this. Um, psychological warfare that she is playing with Lee and Dennis and, and that story. And, you know, it's part of the regeneration that she's sort of like Patui um, don't need this. And, 
and it's it's very tragic because he's he's a guy who got pulled into this drama when he was just trying to to avoid any sort of conflict in his life and then found himself surrounded by it. I find the last half of the novel to be gripping. I can see what you're saying about the first half. There's a sense of meandering and in terms of setting up the high school dynamics, the family dynamics, the oppression of Arnie by every force in his life that makes Dennis, you know, the one element that is in his favor. And, and, you know, unlike the, the movie where Lee has eyes for Dennis first, right. like, Part of the thing that is so wonderful about, you know, just identity evolution is that Lee didn't have any of the baggage that that Arnie had been dragging with him. She didn't see him as as pizza face. She didn't see him as the object of all of the derision of their peers. And she just saw him as a smart guy who had a certain confidence because this older woman in his life gave him a sense of worldliness and she responded to that. So in the, in the novel, or in the movie rather, there is a different kind of Dennis Lee dynamic where Dennis and Lee were always supposed to end up together because like they're the ones who, who first had eyes for each other. And I think the movie does Lee a little dirty, to be honest. I, I think she's kind of, she's a much stronger character in the book and you, maybe some of that is just being able to ha- have like what Stephen King does great, uh, you know, taking a look inside her mind and knowing her thought process. I have to say that I feel like that that character is barely registers as more than a pretty face in the movie. And that kind of ma- makes me sad. I don't think that was uh, one of the better parts of that adaptation. I, I always thought that Kelly Preston and Ag- Alexander Paul should have switched roles. Oh, a uh, thousand million percent. Yeah. That it felt like Kelly Preston is very much the Lee Cabot of, of the book. And Alexander Paul is very much Roseanne-esque in, in terms of being very pretty. And you could see like she has this sort of innocence to her that that I felt like Kelly Preston, even when she was playing like the blonde cheerleader, had some moves as a uh, actor uh, that felt more Lee esque than Alexandra. And I think both actors did great work, but I do feel like their role should have been flipped. It's interesting. The, the ending, you know, for me, that is so scary is, is the ultimate fate of Arnie and, and Regina. And the, which the is tragic again, sorry to interrupt, but like you mentioned that the death of Arnie's parents are both tragic because Michael, they kind of describe him getting behind the wheel almost as an act of trying to connect with the son, right? He's not, he doesn't go to try to kill Christine or whatever and gets caught. It's like, he sees it sitting in the driveway and he goes and sits behind the wheel. And my interpretation of that was that that's him trying to understand what, what's happening with his son. Right. Yes. What this car so, is so beautiful and sad, and they they kind of gave that moment to Will Darnell in the movie, which made zero sense because why are you getting in that scabby car that's been on fire? <laughs> There's a lot of like, I'm going to walk into the alligator's maw and sit <laughs> and like, boy, don't be surprised if something bad happens with a lot of these characters in the film version. 
and I and I see the sort of like production savvy simplifications of boy, it's easier to have Robert Prosky die by getting squeezed between a wobbly steering wheel that's clearly you know has flexibility in it uh, to make the actor comfortable and and the seat moving forward, whereas his death in the novel is. Epic. I mean, it's a grander extrapolation of the death in the car, uh, where the car drives through the living room of one of the characters and basically takes her head off. But it's much more savage. It's much more expensive. Like if you were having to produce a car batter ramming a house until it breaks through and then, you know, clobbers the staircase down so you fall in front of it and then it runs you over a bunch of times, which was like, amazing because it took this kind of perfect storm of elements to kill him off in a way that really for me was very exciting and one of the things that cinematically i missed when i saw the adaptation was i missed seeing christine in the snow so much of the novel is about that red car against the stark white snow and the way she took out Buddy Repperton and, uh, you know, the, in the car and then having, um, you know, Roland LeBay sort of like step out of the car and give like last rites. There was this interesting level of craftsmanship that King was doing on the page that we didn't get see translated to the screen because it would have been simply ridiculous to produce. But the death of Regina and Arnie in the car, when witnesses said they saw a third person in the car and there was only two people found in the wreckage, was also sort of like the last haunting grasp. And I imagine it was... Uh, Roland LeBay had two points of contact for his soul. One was the car and one was Arnie. And the car was being destroyed, so he had to get into Arnie to find a safe place to hide. And Arnie pulled a a Darth Vader and and fought (laughs) the good side, fought at the end. Yeah. Which was was sort of like like, Arnie died a hero in the novel and died a sad lover in (laughs) In the movie. Well, and, and just going back real quick to the the mother, like she's been kind of nagging throughout this whole thing. She's been a, a character that you can sympathize with more in the book, but it's still kind of an unsympathetic character. She's being hard line for for reasons that you just want to like go like what's who gives a shit? Let him park the car in the driveway. You know, it's like you're wanting to meet meet her in the middle of like some sort of sane compromise. And she just is never willing to to be that. But the fact that like she is so excited because the whole reason, the whole pretense of Arnie not being in town is he and his mom are driving to the college that they have been planning for him to go to since he was like a little kid. Right. So this is, I'm going to go, we're going to go look at this college. We're going to go to apply to this college, you know, and she is so excited and she, you know, this, this is like, oh my God, I'm getting my son back. And on the cusp of that is when they both die. Well, and what you you bring up there is there's a wonderful you know marbleization of of sentimentality in there in both Michael and and Regina's relationship to Arnie in the novel that when they start to lose him every time they see him they're reminded of happier times and happier moments with him as a little boy before this happened and it felt so authentic to a parent's experience 
of, of trying to navigate a, a child that they are losing in some form. And I found that really, you know, on, on one level, it's a very sort of like traditional uh, extrapolation of, of a relationship to sort of like pop into somebody's head and, and see happier times. But I found it really effective in this because it was about losing a good kid. Like Arnie was always a good kid. And that was the kind of triumph in his death at the end was the good kid was finally, as you say, you know, Anakin was rising up and trying to fight the forces that 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 posed a, an immediate direct threat to not only him but his mother in a way that the happy ending uh, of sorts is that Arnie got himself back but it was too late but he did have that that small victory and you you get a little positivity too because after everything's said and done Dennis uh sees him one more time he visits him in the uh in the hospital uh, after the events of the ending, the way King does it is one of my favorite parts of the book. Like, and I can have criticisms of the book. I, I, I feel like it, I know it originated as a short story idea and it feels to me like it would have been better as a short story or a novella. Um, I think it stretches a little bit too much and is a little too inconsistent, but I love, I love what he does at the end here with, you have this guy who's on all these drugs, you know, all these painkillers, and he's seeing well-wishers and visitors, and one of them is Arnie, who he notices, like, his glasses are on, but have a crack in them or something. And he and Arnie is like, hey, man, thank you. Essentially, Arnie's like saying, you, you saved me. I appreciate it. And then he realizes after that Arnie and his mom died in, a, in the car wreck around the, at the same time that Christine, quote-unquote, died. There is a little bit of positivity, you know, to steal. I think uh, it's Kubrick who was talking about The Shining, saying it's one of his most optimistic movies because it supposes there's actually an afterlife. So, you know, there is something to to uh, uh, that visit by Arnie at the end that I think, like, really puts a nice cherry on top of, of that character. Yeah, I think that I, I, I agree. I think that there is a... What one of the, one of the things I loved the most in this most this this recent reread of Christine were were the serpent the supernatural elements and the the kind of tethering of Christine's victims to her that were really sort of cinematic. You know, it had this kind of um, you know American Werewolf in London aspect of of comedic corpses and you know comedic corpses and cars that I found really <laughs> something that I, I would love to see in a more authentic adaptation and I do feel that there is an authentic adaptation yet to be had of Christine that can get into some of these uh, aspects that were kind of streamlined away in the original adaptation because i do feel like there's there's so much more in this book than made it to the screen and i do feel like there's a truly scary adaptation of this book to be had yeah i'd very much like to see something that actually shows the transition that arnie goes through because in in the movie he goes from nerd to you know 50s cool kid uh in one cut yeah, you know, yeah. and I would love to see the slow corruption of of this influence. You know, I think that would be really cool. Scott, what do you think about like uh, the end? End like there's also that that great stinger too, where even though Christine's dead, there's like a new 
the spirit might live on kind of thing. Uh, With the the grill kind of twitching at the end? No, well, that's the grill twitching at the end of the movie. Um, At the end of the book, like there's a... The drive drive in thing where it crashes through a fucking... Yeah. Takes out a guy. Yeah, I like that. I like both endings. I, I think those are both viable endings. I just... I'm not a big fan of this one. Like Eric, I feel like I have gained a new appreciation of this property to use horrible branded terms over the course of this conversation, but sort of discovering a new appreciation for these things is a very good reason for us to be doing this, this podcast. So even if I come new into it, like being like, eh, I'm not really a big fan of this one. Inevitably, whoever we're talking to always kind of changes my mind a little bit. And Brian is uh, particularly good at that. You know, I love alternate reads on a thing, you know, that that I would never have come up with myself. And I, I think we've heard a great one here today. In fact, that leads into my final question, which is, Brian, do you have a do you have another one on deck for us? Like, what what else can you tell us? Like, <laughs> like, like there's like I, I'm curious to see what you guys haven't hit yet, because I have so thoroughly loved preparing for this and just, you know, having conversations with, with trans friends and rewatching the movie in 4k and rereading the book. And, you know, at the beginning, like, honestly, when I was rereading the book at the beginning, I was like, Oh, maybe I should have picked a different one because this, like it was, it took me a second to, to get into it. But honestly, once, once Moochie was killed, I felt like, I read it much quicker. Mm. Like pages started whipping by, and I had that wonderful experience that I had as a kid, where you would start reading at five o'clock, and you'd look up, and it's nine o'clock, and you're like, "Oh my god, I've been lost in a wonderful novel mm-hmm. for the last four hours, and lost all kind of sense of time." So, um, yeah, there was there was a brief moment where I was like, "Maybe this is not the right one," and then like it just it clicked the high gear for me. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Um, and I do feel like there's there's a lot to be unpacked thematically with this, as with with you know a lot of King's work. He is deceptively elegant. I was going to say simple, but that's that's also deceptive. But he's he's elegant in the way he tells story, the way he tucks themes and emotion between very rudimentary language and some way to convey very complex uh, emotions and, and very honest emotions. And there's something so American about Christine, a with the fetishization of the muscle cars and the disillusion of the family unit and what was happening in the eighties and the late seventies to the family unit that are all kind of wrapped up in, uh, in this story that gets leaked out in unexpected ways. So yes, I would love to come back. You're welcome back anytime. Literally anything you want to talk about, you know, as long as we can, we can throw Stephen King in there at some point. uh, You're always welcome on the show. Yeah, I just listen. I I just like listening to you talk, man. Like, like like for the past 20 minutes, I was just like kind of staring at my screen and listening to y'all talk. And it was it was good. Like, fucking, I'm down for whatever you want to do going forward. So. I think there's hell. If you want to talk about Dean Koontz, you can talk about Dean Koontz. We'll, we'll, all right. Let's not get fucking hysterical. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
so this is normally the, well, normally an hour ago. This is the portion <laughs> of the program where we ask our guests to plug whatever they're working on next. Can you, can you give us a smidge of whatever you're doing next? I'm loving sort of the bubble of no press announcements. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a new Hannibal season confirmed, ladies and gentlemen. Yet another King Cass <laughs> exclusive. Oh, I wish. <laughs> uh thank awesome, you man. so much for being here today this was this is a fucking blast you're one of my favorite people to talk to i i keep saying that but i, I don't know what else to say i i love this subject and i like i love that you guys are indulging sort of queer reads on 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 these these stories because i do think that there's there's something so fundamental about the queer experience and placing your queerness in an outside entity and gaining the power of the thing inside you that I feel like speaks to a lot of King's work and whether it's in, I don't think it's intentional, but I feel like that's what makes queer readings of things so much fun is yeah, that totally. we're, we're leeching out what we can from the experience and I love looking at things that are are very traditionally heteronormative and saying, yes, but this is what it means to me as a queer person. And we love hearing it. Yeah. Once again, anytime, you're welcome back. Thank you. Many thanks for Brian Fuller for returning with yet another great, insightful episode here. And a hell of an episode to end the year, I think. It has been a hell of a year. And we think that this episode was a, a really great way to close it out. And while we're on that subject, I'd, I'd like to thank everyone who has tuned in this year. We are just dumbfounded at how accepted this show has been and how excited people have been about it. And we would absolutely not still be doing the show were it not for all the people that are, are tuning in every week. Uh, you folks really make the job worth doing. And as we end this first calendar year with the show, we are just swelling with pride and love for our listeners and and Stephen King too. I guess we should give him a credit there too because without him yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's see if I he mean, comes he, on the show little... first and then we'll start passing out thanks. I know what you mean. Right, right. Yeah. We're going to get him. I don't know. Someday. I don't know by what hook or by what crook, but it will occur. Uh we'll figure it out. Uh you have any thoughts on the the year that was? I, I just want to say thanks to everybody who's listened so far and uh, say thanks to everybody who has agreed to come on the show as a guest and, yeah. you know, really shared their their insights. And uh, 2021 looks like uh, it's going to be even bigger and better. Do we want to tease the next week's episode first or do we want to tease the Patreon first? Well, let's let's do the Patreon one first. Let's close out the year of housework before we get into next year. This Friday on the KingCast Patreon which is located at patreon.com backslash the KingCast. Please sign up today. Thank you very much. We have a colleague of ours, Mr. Todd Gilchrist, coming in to talk about a very niche, what was for me a, an unknown sort of footnote in Stephen King's uh, entire body of work, which is this docu-series that aired in the mid-90s on MTV, of all places, called Stephen King's This Is Horror. Our Patreon members should know that we're going to embed links to all three parts of this thing in the post that runs. So you'll get to see it before, after or during while you're listening to the episode. It's sort of like if someone took Dance Macabre and turned it into a three hour Stephen King MTV documentary. 
really it's a look at how Stephen King has inspired so many people. You can always trace it back to Stephen King. That's what we're going to be talking about on Friday. It's a great episode, and uh, we think y'all are going to like it. And next week on the main feed, we are starting the year off strong with uh, something that's a little bit unusual for what we usually do. Our, our typical structure is we take one story and look at that and its adaptation. We're looking at a whole book of novellas next week. We are going to be looking at all four novellas within different seasons. Yes. And who's our guest for this episode? Uh, well, oh. you'll have to wait to find out <laughs> uh, next Monday when we when we That's announce true. it via our Twitter at KingCast19. Uh, but what we can say is that our guest is involved. He's a, a major player in one of the three adaptations that was made from uh, from different seasons. And also, it's worth noting that because we're covering essentially four in one, this episode is longer than normal. You got an extra long episode this week. So we are ending the year with a big episode and we're beginning the new year with a very big episode. We needed a lot of runway to work with in order to get everything covered. And our guest was quite a bit of fun to talk to. So, yeah, be ready for that. See you next week for different seasons. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Andley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>